Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence brought to you by the TCT content team. Today's episode is a panel session recorded live at this year's Type 3D Printing Conference, where TCT collaborated with Women in 3D Printing to announce this year's TCT Women in 3D Printing Innovator Award finalists. Listen on to learn about our finalist journeys into additive manufacturing, the industry challenges that require more attention, and much more. Then head on over to ttawards.com to enter your vote. For more Additive Insight, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for even more Additive Insight, visit tctmagazine.com to receive your free print subscription to the magazine and get the biggest 3D printing news stories delivered straight to your inbox every week. Great to be here at Type 2022. Um, I am Laura Griffiths. I am TCT Head of Content, and I'm so happy to be announcing today's um, TCT Women in 3D Printing Innovator Award finalists. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to the organizers of Type and Women in 3D Printing for collaborating with us on this very special award and also hosting this fantastic event too. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the TCT group, just a quick intro to us. Um, TCT has been around in the additive manufacturing industry providing AM and 3D printing intelligence since 1992, which makes this year our 30th year, which is pretty exciting. Um, and as you can see here, our magazines and digital products and events cover the AM landscape across Europe, North America and Asia. One of those events is our TCT Awards. Um, and a few years ago, we got together with Women in 3D Printing to launch this brand new award. Uh, the TCT Awards overall celebrates the achievements, innovations, and all important collaborations within the additive manufacturing industry. And we really wanted to shine a light on the achievements of women in the industry, hence the collaboration with Women in 3D Printing. So back in 2019, we launched the first award, and as you can see there, our first winner was Professor Y.E. Young, Programme Director at the Singapore Centre for 3D Printing. Then back in 2020, we opened the vote again and asked the AM and 3D Printing audience to submit their nominations for who could be the next TCT Women 3D Printing Innovator Award winner. Hundreds of nominations were sent in by the community, and they were then whittled down by TCT and Women in 3D Printing to a shortlist of five, which was very, very difficult. Um, but I'm very pleased today to be announcing uh, the five finalists that we have and to also launch the public vote, which you'll be able to do right after this session closes. And so let's just get into it. Without further ado, here they are, our finalists. Now, I'm sure many of you will recognize um, the women um, on our panel today for their work in the additive manufacturing industry and various achievements. And we're going to talk to them today about their journey into the additive manufacturing industry, uh, what they're doing now, and also what's coming next. So I am very pleased to welcome our finalists today. We have Eliana Fu, Industry Manager for Aerospace and Medical at Trump. Diana Kalis, Vice President for Materials at 3D Systems. Ellen Lee, Technical Leader of Additive Manufacturing for Research and Advanced Engineering at Ford Motor Company. Candice Majewski, Senior Lecturer in Mechanical Engineering at the University of Sheffield. And Katie Milne, Head of Industrial Strategy for Fly Zero. Great to have you all with us for this panel. Um, I know it's super early for some of our panelists too, so sorry, but thank you also for taking the time uh, to join us today. Um, and Candice, I must say, when I was bringing together this image, I was very happy about your colour scheme on your hat and, and, and her dye, because it matched very well with the TCT Awards branding. So thank you very much. <laughs> 
So let's get into it then. Um, hopefully we'll have some time for some um, audience participation at the end. So please feel free to use the Q&A function and to add in your questions. Um, but as we have five panelists to get through it, we're going to try and run for as many questions as possible, but we'll hopefully have some time um, at the end. So yeah, let's just uh, let's just get into it and start. So I want to start by asking each of you about what led you into the 3D printing and additive manufacturing industry, your current roles in the industry and your current areas of interest. So I think we'll start with Eliana. Um, so tell us about what led you into additive manufacturing and, and what you're working on right now. Yeah, I am so happy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you very much for being a, um, um, allowing me to be a nominee. Um, I actually came from traditional metalworking. I didn't even know what 3D printing was until about 10 or 15 years ago. So my background is traditional titanium uh, metallurgy. And what I noticed is more and more of my customers were asking for a uh, product for 3D printing. And I was like, what's that? I should find out about that. <laughs> so um, I actually got more in depth in that when I joined SpaceX, they were one of my customers actually recruited me. And um, I just started working on uh, materials, raw material supply, um, uh, uh, 3D printing processes. I was senior engineer at Relativity Space. And uh, the, the amazing thing about 3D printing is that it allows us to do these kind of unique shapes, uh, designs, profiles, and things like that. Um, in my role as uh, industry manager at Trump, um, I'm looking after aerospace and medical. So those are two amazing industry sectors that can benefit from 3D printing. And one of the things I'm most interested in at the moment is using the green laser for 3D printing and making a lot of development on that. So we have a couple of challenges, but the, the door is wide open for enhanced products, um, especially in reflective materials like copper, gold, platinum, silver and palladium and so on. And I'm very looking forward to finding out what else can be printed with a green laser. And we're definitely going to talk to you a little bit more about green laser uh, later on in the panel session. Uh, Diana, what about you? What about your journey into additive manufacturing and, and, and what you're up to right now? Well, thanks so much for having me. And um, it's a, it has been a really interesting journey. I originally came out of aerospace <clears throat> and was working in an area where I was using lasers and optics to measure fluid flows around various types of objects and through like pipes and such like that. Um, I actually moved and it was total happenstance that I was looking for a job in technology. Um, and I, I basically stumbled across 3D printing. That was very early. This was in 1989. Um, so the very first SLA-1 had come out. But beyond that, there was no other 3D printing. So um, I brought my experience with lasers and optics and um, bringing um, you know, hardware together into 3D printing, and it's been just an extraordinary journey since then. Um, now my focus is on using 3D printing for direct production of parts, uh, particularly on the plastics side. So I do have a connection with our metals groups, but my work is all in the plastics. Um, and so my, uh, my work is working with customers to figure out how to use 3D printing directly for making plastic parts that can be used for real production in place of standard methodologies. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to getting into your experiences over such a long career in the additive manufacturing <laughs> industry later on. Um, Ellen, how about you? Well, hi, Laura, and uh, good morning to everybody. Um, I agree. It's such an honor to be here, one of the nominees. Um, so I'm excited to um, hear more from the others, as well as learn more about um, the participants here at the conference. 
Um, for me, I've been working with um, additive manufacturing technologies for about eight years now, but I've been at Ford Motor Company in our research organization for 23 years. And my focus has been in materials and manufacturing innovations. And so throughout my career, I've always been aware of additive manufacturing, but primarily as a prototyping tool. So naturally, I kind of came to it from that point of view. So it was um, uh, about eight years ago when I was approached by our prototyping lab about what to do with our waste SLS powder and how to reduce it. Um, and I wondered to myself at the time, as I started to dig into, you know, what, how can we improve the sustainability of it? Um, I, I wondered to myself whether we could use additive manufacturing as a tool in the sustainable materials development that I was doing for conventional manufacturing. And because in that development, we're constantly challenged by doing component level testing, but not having mold tools um, to test those parts. And so I naively thought, oh, we could just develop the material, 3D print it, test it, and, and there we go. We would kill two birds with one stone. And so once I discovered that the process structure property relationships in additive manufacturing were relatively unexplored and that there was a big gap in um, having robust functional materials to use additive manufacturing beyond prototyping, I was hooked. So I immediately wanted to learn everything I could about it. And I started to develop a strategy of what other use cases we could use additive manufacturing for in the automotive industry. And so I saw a huge opportunity because from the materials and manufacturing background, we could really, uh, as well as the um, automotive experience, we could really start to um, address those gaps to get to the scaled use um, for production. So today um, I'm the technical leader um, in our research organization at Ford um, to set forth the, the technical roadmap and the development of the strategy for use of additive manufacturing and primarily to address on the technical side um, how to um, cover those gaps so that we can um, use it more widely. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Looking more forward to getting into the kind of roadmap and how you're implementing that at Ford a little bit later on. Um, Candice, how about you? You're coming at this from the side of academia. Yeah, so, so I'm an academic at the University of Sheffield. Um, I guess my job as an academic is kind of a mishmash of lots of different aspects, which I really enjoy. Um, on a research side, I'm focused around powdered polymer additive manufacturing systems, and in particular, as Ellen was mentioning, these structure property relationships, um, how the materials behave in the machines, how we can develop more materials, um, how we can make those materials more reliable, that sort of thing. <clears throat> I also do quite a bit of teaching. So I think I mentioned in my profile, I've done um, taught over about a thousand students I worked out, which is something I'm really excited for, you know, year on year. Um, and then little bits of other things, so, you know, outreach activities, <clears throat> um, working on equality and diversity initiatives within the university as well, because I think that's really important. Um, I kind of fell into additive manufacturing completely by accident. Um, I was in the final semester of my university undergraduate in mechanical engineering. We had a guest lecture from someone who spoke to us about rapid prototyping, as it was still called at the time. Um, and I just was completely captivated by it. It was it was completely accidental. Um, coincidentally, I actually had a graduate job lined up at Ford Motor Company to go into oh, wow. when I finished my degree. Um, and and like I say, I just I saw this three D printing thing, and I thought, wow, that's that's kind of it. Um, so yeah, I think for anyone who's watching who hasn't found the thing they're passionate about yet, it's it's kind of perhaps proof that you don't have to know from really early on what you want to do. Um, and I guess just keep an eye out for those things and, and find those opportunities. But yeah, com completely by accident. And that, that one lecture, everything kind of changed. And, and here I am. 
that's such an important point and we'll definitely get more into that a little bit later on in the conversation and finally katie and tell us about how you got into the am industry so probably also slightly accidentally i am um, was doing my doctorate at rolls royce but focused on a, a different manufacturing process so metal matrix composites um, and my my field's actually non-destructive testing rather than additive manufacturing explicitly but i've always looked at how you can apply non-destructive te testing and measurement to to kind of advancing or maturing those new metal processes so once i finished that doctorate they kind of encouraged me to go and apply to this new thing which was um not quite called the it, it's it's now called the high value manufacturing catapult but it wasn't called it then it, it became um the high value manufacturing catapult a year or two later and so i so i applied to one of the centers there um, and i was based right at the beginning at, at birmingham university which is another um university in the uk that's a lot on additive and i remember seeing they were trying to print a belt buckle and uh, it really didn't work <laughs> <laughs> this was in 2010 but I was like oh you know it really brought home to me the potato it didn't work but I was like if they could just fix that you know there's there's so many amazing things that could be done um so that so then I started doing my work in in the catapult center and um, I worked on the a massive project in in the early noughties which was um sorry in the early 2010 again with Rolls-Royce which was to print the biggest a, a front bearing house uh, or biggest metallic additively manufactured part that ever been made for aerospace and it was a front bearing house sheffield university were actually also involved and and their partner center the chef uh, the amrc and i was focused on understanding what the failure mechanisms were during um manufacturing using all the imaging techniques i could throw at it ultrasonics and x-ray and helping them to build the quality standards um, and then kind of later in my career went on to uh, lead a a big UK supply chain project for aerospace called it's called drama it finished at the end of last year uh, so the end of 20 oh, crikey I'm getting confused <laughs> at the end of 2020 my dog's just come back in <laughs> home. Um, so I, I might show them to you in a minute and and um, in in that we uh, expanded our facilities at the MTC so we could better help supply chain companies but we also worked with 23 aerospace supply chain companies who were kind of at different stages in their adoption, help them learn about it, understand it, get some hands-on experience in metal powder bed additive manufacturing. So, so that's been my journey. And now, now I'm in this completely bonkers project called Fly Zero, which um, I might talk about a little bit later, which is all about building hydrogen aeroplanes and additive manufacturing has come up a little bit in that. So. Great, thank you so much. Well, as you can see, we've got quite a range of areas of expertise on this panel. So I really want to dive into some specific questions with each of our speakers and then bring it back around later on to ask some more general questions. So I think I want to start with um, with Eliana and you mentioned the green laser stuff that you're working on um, right now. And I know you've already presented um, this week on the same topic. So I just want to ask you about what you are doing with that green laser technology and kind of why it is such an, an untapped uh, resource at the moment. Yeah, if you um, were able to catch my presentation last night, um, but if you're not, um, I probably will present it again somewhere. Um, but as you know, the green laser is providing superior results compared to IR. So especially with reflective materials like copper and then also um, precious metals like gold, platinum, palladium and silver, 
I mean, the, the main interest from industry has been pure copper for electrical thermal conductivity. But where I see its huge benefit is for space. And so a lot of people have been moving away from the nickel-based um, alloys for the rocket engine thrusters and um, chambers and so on, and actually combining that with a, a copper um, inner um, chamber with a nickel jacket on the outside. And that combination of additive processes, whether you start with a, a powder bed uh, copper part and then finish with a DED nickel or some kind of bimetallic, I think that the green laser can offer tremendous advantages in building those kind of structures. Um, so our challenge right now is to try and implement that on a machine. We have it on the, the smallest powder bed machine that Trump makes, which is 100 millimeters. So it's not very big, but I really see that um, being um, an advantage for DED, especially the freeform DED. So that's kind of where I'm trying to look and find out who who's going to be the first one to 3D print a copper engine that can be hot fire tested. Great. And I'm sure that uh, participants will be able to catch up on that presentation on the Women 3D Printing YouTube channel uh, later on. Uh, Diana, moving on to you now, you spoke about your long career in the AM industry, and I know you said you're concentrating more on, on the polymer side. And I just wondered, since you've been in the industry for such a long time, you've really seen the evolution of the technology and how uh, 3D printing applications have advanced. Can you talk about how materials have really played a role in that and, and how you're seeing that in your role as VP of materials at 3D Systems? So when I first started, um, of course, there was it really was just rapid prototyping. And um, when, when we got a part that was the shape, roughly the shape of the CAD, we were so excited. Um, and the materials were not really very useful except for, um, for prototyping. Um, and, you know, when you tried to build a flat part, it turned out to be an elf shoe. Um, but since then, um, the materials are so important because I've always said to our teams that what the customer wants is a part in their hand, and it's got to be a useful part. Uh, the level of complexity and what it takes to make that happen really is not the customer's problem. They want their part. So um, the key thing that I've been working on most recently is the innovations in materials that have allowed us to get to parts that really do rival both the properties and the longevity of standard plastics. And that is a whole new frontier for polymers in 3D printing. So that's what I'm most excited about. And that's what I work on with customers uh, to say, okay, how can we introduce this into true manufacturing, not just prototyping? And there are certain places, you know, every, um, in every case, uh, it's, it's not a Star Trek replicator, so it's not right for every application, but there are a lot of things we can do that people never imagined at the time, certainly when I started, that you'd be able to do with 3D printing. And so it's really exciting. Um, it's very challenging because there are a lot of perceptions about 3D printing that are currently incorrect, but once you can understand what a customer wants to do and um, bring forward what 3D printing can do today, it's, it opens just amazing places for it to go. So um, I've been excited for the last more than 30 years, and I'm even more excited now. 
Great, and I am glad to see that we're seeing less of those Star Trek replicators <laughs> in 3D printing. <laughs> so um, moving on to Ellen now. Ellen, you're coming at this from a user of additive manufacturing, of course, working with a huge company, Ford Motor Company. You've established uh, the dedicated AM research program in 2014. Can you perhaps share with us um, some of the unique opportunities and challenges around introducing and implementing a new technology like additive manufacturing in a major company like Ford. Of course, and before I start, I just wanted to comment um, to Diana that it's funny that as um, one of the experts in, in additive manufacturing and really trying to pull um, applications for it, I find that most telling people not to use additive manufacturing for that specific application because of that perception that it can do anything. So um, as I said um, earlier, I spent my time at Ford Motor Company in an innovation role in our research organization. So um, I've always been spent, uh, I've always spent my time looking for emerging technologies and trends and how we can apply them to our products and processes. So I guess uh, you could say I like a challenge um, because I feel energized to prove people wrong when they say that something can't be done. So one of the benefits of being in a big company with a very complex product is that there are so many opportunities in which additive manufacturing can provide value. Um, but the challenge is that implementing major changes is, we often say it's like steering the Titanic because um, on the product side, you know, changing one small thing, it's a, it's a complex system. So from the system's point of view, changing one thing affects you know, so many other things. Um, similarly, changing one thing in the process also changes so many other steps in that process. And so you need to work with that systems mindset and understand um, how everything affects everything else. And so for the process changes, we need to have very good alignment and buy-in to get all of the ores rowing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So the good news is that um, from Ford Motor Company's point of view, our leadership understands that as a large company, we still need to be able to operate with the agility of a small company so this starts with excellent communication and human-centered design. We're always asking ourselves what our customers would like. And fortunately, we're all customers ourselves because we, we almost all of us drive a vehicle um, every day, maybe, maybe less so now during um, the pandemic. <laughs> but um, uh, as part of the research organization, Ford depends on us to tell the company where and when we need to turn. So once we have that alignment, we're able to put forth the appropriate and sometimes very large resources. So in the case of additive manufacturing, when we convinced senior leadership of the huge potential we could have in different areas, both in the short term and in the long term, um, and um, you know, investing in that long-term development, we are able to get um, significant resources um, for those capabilities. And in fact, it resulted in us building the advanced manufacturing center that has a lot of really great um, state-of-the-art additive um, as well as other advanced manufacturing capabilities. So the continuing challenge is that we need to remember that we're a mobility company, not an additive manufacturing company. So it's not our number one priority. Um, so we, we do need to take that you know, into consideration that additive is another tool in the toolbox that has to work well with the other manufacturing processes.
Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Sam Green, 3D Systems Professional Printer Category Manager, discusses advancements in polymer materials to increase AM repeatability, productivity and part performance. We know that 3D printing has been moving for some time now from a predominantly prototyping tool to a manufacturing tool. And the real end game really is for 3D printing not to replace traditional manufacturing, but to support that adding breadth and depth and agility and complexity to where it's uh, really required. SLS is a great contender for producing uh, plastic, true plastic parts, thermoplastics in PA12, nylons. However, the drawback of many thermoplastic technologies has been the process by which these individual layers of the parts are melded together. So large thermal discrepancies can occur typically across either a single part where you display different mechanical properties at one end of the part and different mechanical properties at the other end. And the same is true if you have a batch of parts. But what we've really done, we've created the new SLS 380 3D printer. And this is designed to deliver consistent and repeatable parts. So we've installed eight individually controlled heaters. And then we've installed a high resolution IR camera that's able to take 100,000 thermal data samples from within the build chamber every second. So the system's algorithm is able to quickly identify any areas where there's high thermal gradient uh, or very low thermal gradient, and then it immediately adjusts the duty cycle of the relevant heater to remove that thermal discrepancy and ensure a more consistent sintering process. And ultimately this uh, temperature stability creates significantly higher part yields and ultimately a more efficient process and even lower part costs. You guys have talked a lot about advancing the science and one of those areas is photopolymer resins. Can you just elaborate on how you're leveraging that to deliver production grade part performance there? We've been able to develop a series of novel patented chemistries and these have really opened the door to the first true production ready photopolymers for additive manufacturing. So we started this process for the figure four 3D printer with our tough black 20 material. This along with other production grade materials that we've released since then, all these materials are tested to demonstrate that they can retain most of their mechanical properties and typically up to eight years indoor and two years outdoor. 30 years ago, 3D Systems invented the SLA 3D printing uh, technology, uh, which uses a vector laser to scan and cure resins in a vat. In contrast to that, the figure four, it still uses a vat of course, but it replaces that laser with a projector-based imaging system that cures a whole layer at a time rather than point by point. So the great advantage of this is, of course, uh, speed. Figure four is unique in that it is a non-contact membrane technology, which means the part does not come into contact with a transparent layer at the bottom of the print tray. So the end game has always been to port over the revolutionary material advances we've made from the projector-based figure four to our SLA range, such as the Pro X800. Back in July, we launched the first of these materials. It's called the Accurate AMX Rigid Black, a high-strength uh, production-grade SLA material with really good environmentally stabilized properties that can withstand years of indoor, outdoor, UV and humidity exposure. It's ideal for large one-to-one scale automotive, consumer durable mounts, frames, jigs, fixtures, or internal frames in things like such as uh, white goods. But taken together, we now have a very powerful solution mix when it comes to resins. If you need small batch quantities of tens to hundreds of thousands of production grade plastic parts, the figure four is an excellent solution. And now if you need large one-to-one scale, large production parts, we now have our SLA platform with the first in our range of Acura AMX 
materials. To learn more about long-term resin performance and industrial scale SLS workflow solutions, visit mytct.co forward slash 3D systems pod or mytct.co forward slash pod SLS. And Candice, you're helping to train the next generation of people that are going to be using uh, additive manufacturing technologies. And you said in your intro that you've taught over a thousand undergraduate and master's students, which is super impressive, especially for anyone that still thinks that additive manufacturing is a brand new technology. <laughs> um, the education gap is something that is often cited as another challenge in the additive manufacturing industry. And I just wondered what's your take on how that gap is being closed now? Well, you know, I think we're getting there. Um, I think there's still a way to go. One of the issues that, that we were talking about maybe, you know, 10 years ago or so was we were seeing this thing where lots of companies were getting in lots of machines. They were bringing additive into the into their companies, into their environments, but without the people to know what to do with it. Um, and so we were seeing this real gap between getting getting equipment into machines and getting skilled people in. We're seeing, I think, quite a lot of different types of training now so obviously I'm coming at it from a, a university level we're seeing apprenticeships we're seeing bespoke courses we're seeing more 3d printing in schools and all of that so I think we're getting a nice breadth of kind of exposure to these these technologies but when I really think about it I think we're we're not looking for engineers or materials people or marketing people or, or whoever specifically um, I think it really comes down to we're looking for people who can solve problems and so for anyone who's been using 3D printing for any amount of time, you probably have the understanding that, you know, it can be a bit finicky. There are things that don't always work perfectly. Um, as the others have mentioned, it's not always the right thing to use for a right applicator for a specific application. So, so one of the things we're trying to do is kind of develop that problem solving ability. Um, I come at it from a position of most of the additive systems out there, you can train someone to use it relatively quickly and relatively easily. Um, and that's fine when everything's working, but it's when something's not working that you, you need that problem solving ability. You need to be able to look at it and say, what are the areas of the process that something could be wrong? You know, have I stored my material wrong or have I just got a dodgy batch or is something wrong on the machine? You know, we need to replace something or we need some maintenance or have we done something to the parts <clears throat> after we've produced them that has, has caused a problem? And then at the, the very bigger scale, I think we also see the same need for problem solvers in, in the large company situations. You know, what, what type of products within our company could we be using additive for? And if we've decided we should be using additive, what's the, the exact process and materials that we should be using for these things? So, so I, th I think for me, it's, it's getting the message out there that actually if you're the type of person who who solves problems and has this analytical approach to things, then actually there's so many areas of the whole additive chain that you probably have a place in. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think that for me is where the enjoyment comes is seeing people develop that kind of ability to problem solve the different areas of the, the process or the supply chain and, and kind of reach those decisions. Okay. And finally, Katie, you're leading a really exciting project, as you described at the start with Fly Zero, which aims to lay the UK roadmap, uh, roadmaps to zero carbon aviation. Can you talk about the role that additive manufacturing is playing there? I know you said it's a kind of a small uh, role right now, but and how AM perhaps lends itself to the progress that's been made for that overall mission. Well, just to give some context about what Fly Zero is, um, it's a project that's being run by an organisation called the UK's Aerospace Technology Institute. 
Um, and it's uh, made up of about 100 secondees that have come from companies across aerospace, but also some other industries. And we've been given a year, so 100 brilliant people, not me, but the others, and, and a year to try and kind of figure out how the UK should compete on um, aircraft. So there's this big revolution happening. You've probably seen it. You'll have seen stuff like air, um, air taxis, for example, which are powered by batteries. Um, but we were really interested in um, how you could decarbonize uh, long distance flight, really. And, you know, and your trip to Costa del Sol or your flight to New York, how, how can you decarbonize that? So, so we didn't look so much at um, replacements for helicopters. We looked at replacements for the 737 and the A320, that kind of thing. Um, so the, the project concluded quite early on that the kind of most viable route for that is to use hydrogen as a fuel that gives you zero carbon tailpipe emissions and significantly reduce so 60 percent. It depends. It depends. Um, like reduction in the overall like warming emissions that come from the aircraft. Um, and then beyond that, that assessment, we've created these three concept aircraft that kind of are a big thought experiment. They embody all the trade offs that you'd have to go through and help us as a nation, the UK, understand like what what's difficult about solving this problem, I suppose. Um, and we've identified a number of technologies that are going to be really critical, but also the UK could compete on. So um, I've just put down a list here to remind myself. So those are hydrogen fuel systems and tanks, um, hydrogen combustors within the gas turbine. And then the wings on these future aircraft will not contain fuel anymore, probably, because the hydrogen takes up a lot more volume. So they're going to have to move where it is. Current, current aircraft have kerosene in the wings, but they're going to have to move where it is into pods or into the fuselage. Um, so because of that, the wings will be dry, dry wings, and um, they, they could be made in a completely different way from as they're made now. Um, so just to say those things again, they're hydrogen fuel systems and tanks, the hydrogen combustor in the gas turbine and dry wings. And there are applications for additive manufacturing across across kind of all three of those those areas, both for like improving the performance of things like heat exchangers, valves and pumps, for realizing the combustors, which will have lots and lots of little injects, injection holes in them. They'll be different from kerosene injectors because hydrogen has tiny flames and burns differently. Um, but also just for general light weighting, you know, if you're doing a clean sheet design of new aircraft, then why would you not use um, or cash in I suppose, the manufacturing processes that allow you to do things like light weighting or significantly in, in, um, improve performance. So additive manufacturing is a massive uh, opportunity, I suppose, for these, these new aircraft and, and one that I think the community kind of needs to jump on top of. And, and what was really nice was uh, obviously I'm, I'm a bit of an advocate for additive manufacturing, given my background, but I didn't push it in the project and they came up with that conclusion anyway. So it will <laughs> appear in lots of the out, outputs. So that was really nice. Yeah, that's certainly a really nice outcome when you don't have to advocate for the technology yourself and industry has already heard of it. That's great. Um, as we are in the people track at Type, um, I'm going to move slightly away from the more technical um, questions and, and on some more just about um, people really. and. I'm interested to know if there is anything each of you might tell your younger self now about entering the additive manufacturing industry that might be useful for anybody um, who's part, who's listening on the panel today and maybe thinking about entering the AM field or, or, or making a career change. I can jump in on that if, if that's Great. okay. Um, 
I think the number one thing I'd say to people now is jump on social media um, because so many people that I've met and so much information that I've found both in additive and, and in other areas, just by kind of being on Twitter, seeing what's going on, you know, you've got LinkedIn there as a great way of meeting up with people and connecting with people. But I think, I think the nice thing in particular about things like Twitter is you can kind of go at your own pace. And so you can spend a bit of time just kind of follow some people who are doing cool stuff in the area you're interested in, see the sort of stuff they're sharing, follow up on that. And, and it kind of gives you this chance to learn a bit and kind of assimilate some of that information from people. And then when you feel comfortable to start engaging and kind of having conversations and, and commenting on things, you can do it. But it's a, I guess it's a very low risk way of kind of finding information. You might mm -hmm. find good mentors there, you might find good friends through it or whatever. Um, but, but I think being able to go at your own pace and kind of be exposed to all that information without the risk of, of kind of having to engage straight away is a really good thing. So I'd, I'd really encourage people to, to make as much use of that as they can. And actually, if it had been more prominent, I'm showing my age now, if it had been more prominent when I was starting out, I think I would have really enjoyed being able to engage in those sort of ways. So, so that's probably my best advice to people, actually. That's a great point. Anybody else? Yeah, I'll build off of that. So um, I was thinking the same in that there's so many different things that you can do in the additive manufacturing industry that you know, that's a great start to see what's going on. But then the next step is to really figure out which aspect um, uh, really excites you the most. Um, and then think about what your own skill set is. And by skill set, I don't mean necessarily um, you know, if you can't are good at programming or if you um, have, you know, analytical skills. Um, my what I mean is think about um, what you can bring um, to a value to um, some aspect of additive manufacturing. I think um, it was uh, um, Candice who mentioned problem solving. Um, so really think about if problem solving is your thing you know, um, what types of um, work can you do in additive manufacturing to say develop a strategy or to um, do research to really understand how to get a, a technical aspect off the ground. So I think really um, look into yourself to see what is exciting. And then once you've done that, um, venues like this, um, conferences, um, networking, um, to find mentors who can help you to develop those skill sets even more and give you advice from their experience about you know, what steps that you should take. Um, so Women in 3D Printing is you know, a great resource for um, finding mentors um, as well as going through social media. And, and don't be afraid to just reach out to somebody because everybody wants to help and kind of remembers when we were searching around for what we wanted to do when we grew up. I'm, I'm still looking for what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> Uh, one thing that I'll, I'll mention is that um, things are going to come up that you don't expect. And so this, especially in this industry, it's moving so fast that um, take advantage of opportunities that pop up. It's great to have a plan. Absolutely. N no issue. I'm a planner from way back. But also keep your eyes open, keep your eyes and ears open within your company. People have mentioned looking at social media and kind of what's going on out in the world um, and look for those opportunities and take advantage of things that interest you um, because you can, you'll end up doing things that you really, really didn't expect. I sure did. 
We have such a broad range of expertise, as I've already mentioned on this panel, and I wondered if there is kind of an area or a topic in the industry that you think we need to be talking more about. So uh, perhaps any challenges or any other untapped application areas that you think need ha to have more attention on them? Yeah, I've got um, something which is maybe a bit off topic, but I think it still relates to the people strand. So um, obviously I have like an Asian background, um, despite my British accent. By the way, Asian people are everywhere <laughs> and have all kinds of accents. Um, but since the pandemic came on, especially in the US, we've seen increasing number of anti-Asian hate crimes, which are despicable. And um, I felt very uh, angry and upset about this. I mentioned to women in 3D printing, I would love to have a discussion about it. And um, last year we were able to, Ellen was actually on a panel too, have a discussion about um, what to do about um, this kind of rising anti-Asian hate that's going on and what we as participants or leaders in women in 3D printing or in manufacturing and as people of color can do to help even other people or ourselves cope with this situation or um, find mechanisms to um, counter all this uh, sort of like negative messaging that's been going on. I, I won't repeat the awful words, but we've, we've I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I can make a report of all the anti-Asian hate crimes where an Asian person has been kicked, punched, stabbed, slashed, kicked in the head, kicked in the stomach, pushed down the stairs, pushed in front of the train. Last week, a woman was pushed in front of the train and died. And it's not stopping. So, you know, it was, I, I will say it's been great to be aware of those things, but also to just be aware of taking part. Please don't feel alone because you're not alone. There's plenty of people that feel like you and there's help and resources that you can participate in order to discuss your feelings or spread the message or help other people. So I want to also shout out TMS, the Minerals, Materials and Metals Society, um, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee, of which I'm a member. Um, TMS has created a working group for the Asian and Pacific Islander community. It is led by um, Dr. Dong Lu, also known as Lily Lu, from University of Bristol in the UK. We also have members from Los Alamos National Lab, University of Michigan, um, University of British Columbia, myself, and Sandia National Labs. So if you are going to be attending the TMS meeting in Anaheim, um, please come up to us and ask us any questions. But also, um, I guess the message that I want to put across is don't feel alone because you're not alone. Thank you, Eliana. I just want to mention, uh, I would recommend going back and watching the panel session that you referred to there. In fact, if anybody has a link to maybe show it in the chat, but um, yeah, I would recommend going back and, and watching last year's panel. And um, does anybody else have any other challenges that they think we need to be highlighting more within the industry, either um, challenges from a, a people perspective or from a technology perspective? I did want to first build off of what Eliana said, um, which mm -hmm. was really important and to feel that you're, you're not alone. But it was during the time of participating in this panel that Eliana initiated um, against Asian hate that I realized um, some really interesting things about the, the model minority myth and how that drives a wedge between Asians and other underrepresented groups. 
And, and I think what I wanted to um, also convey is that we need to start reaching beyond um, just Asians or just one you know, underrepresented group and really band together and um, advocate for some of those other groups, um, especially in the areas of intersectionality, when you belong to, to more than one of those groups. And I think what came out then was, um, to me anyway, was um, the importance of advocacy and allyship um, in combating the ENI um, you know, uh, deficiencies. And um, so one, I wanted to share um, a piece of um, an anecdote that a male colleague once told me. Um, he told me that whenever he's invited to speak on a panel, he asks who else is on the panel to ensure that it has proper representation from other underrepresented groups, which I thought was awesome because he was in a position of power and influence being you know, invited to share his experience and wanted to make sure that you know, representation is there because representation matters. And so he said, if it does not include any of these groups, he will decline and tell them why and to, you know, to ensure that someone else can um, be represented. So I thought that was a, a great example of advocacy. And you know, I invite um, everyone to kind of think about what they each can do in this regard. I'm aware we only have a couple of minutes left now. So any other points on that question there before we move on to the last one, which I guess kind of ties in actually with what we were just talking about there. OK, well, um, Candice, actually, you sort of suggested this this final topic, you know, and we're here at Type, organised by Women in 3D Printing. And I think Women in 3D Printing founder Nora really said it best when she said that there's no excuse anymore for not having enough women on conference lineups or in our organisations. And I feel like this conference shows that we're really, you know, getting to a place of achieving that. And of course, we could always um, do more and do better. And um, you were interested to hear people's thoughts on what, what do we do next? Where, where do we go after this? Yeah, so I think, I mean, this conference, this event is amazing, right? It's it's full of so many incredible women with different career journeys, different places, different backgrounds and all of that. Um, and so for me, I think it's important that we don't just stop at women um, and, and tradition. And it builds on what Eliana and Ellen were, were saying. We've, we've kind of got this thing of we've sometimes we say we've done it for women and that kind of ticks the box. You know, we've had some women on a panel or we've done this. Um, and so I think it's really for all of us to be looking around our, our companies, our universities, our classrooms, whatever, and saying kind of who's not here that really ought to be here and what can we do about it? Um, and I think there's probably some quite, you can look at it either way, but I think there is good news on it in that actually we know a lot of the barriers. Um, so I wanted to mention specifically um, the Leading Roots organization did a wonderful report on the barriers that academia present to black PhD students. Um, and, and, you know, crucially in that they had things that we can do about it. You know, how do we address those barriers? We've also got perhaps again through the social media thing, we've got loads of access to people who have all of this wealth of, of anecdotal information, you know, people who've lived through being in whatever minority group or with whatever intersectionalities. Um, and, and so I think it's really the challenge I'd give to everyone actually is, is probably to go away and just try to, you know, pick something and, and start there and say, actually, what, what groups do I not know about or what barriers am I not aware of? Um, and then perhaps look at those and, you know, very gradually even kind of build up your knowledge of that and then look around your 
your kind of your nearest workplace, if you like, and say, which of these things can I start to make a difference on now? Which of these things can I be pushing upwards or pushing sideways and saying, this is what we need to, to do something about. But, but that's, that's the really key message for me is not stopping at women and saying, you know, who else is experiencing barriers and what do we need to, to do to overcome them?